Hey there, everyone. It is then again at the Northeast Georgia History Center. I'm your host, Glenn, and today we have a fascinating topic. It's it's interesting. It's sad. It's hopeful. It's all those things. And to help us get through it, we have an expert, Dr. Alex Wisnowski, once again from the University of North Georgia. So, uh, Dr. Wisnowski, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, thanks for having me, and thanks for nailing that last name without even having to do a pronunciation check beforehand, so good on you there. Yeah, um, so I am an assistant professor of Latin American history here at UNG, and my particularly specialty is colonial Latin American history focused in and around what is today Peru. So I look at a lot of Catholic church records and like to research a lot into the dynamics of the family and its relation to the church, which had a lot to say about the family in that case, and research a a good amount into the practices of enslavement of Africans at that time in that same region. I've been here at UNG for about five years, and before that had taught at a couple other places for short stints, but I'd done my graduate training at University of Minnesota, uh, which a lot of folks don't often think about when they think about Latin American history, <laughs> but was a great place with lots of Latin Americanists to, uh, to, to draw from. And so uh, I think I got some, uh, some pretty great mentors there that kept me in line and allowed me to do some pretty cool work. So today wanted to, to pull you in and talk about slavery and specifically how the enslaved could use to some success, perhaps to, to not as much success, the legal system to try to keep those families together. And, you know, one, and one thing we can just, we can just start from right here. You mentioned, you know, slavery in the Latin American countries. Tell us just a little bit about that, because I I think most people in the modern United States, when they think of slavery, all they think of is gone with the wind, cotton plantations in the South of the United States. But obviously that, that was a much larger institution uh, regionally, geographically, right? Absolutely. So that's honestly in some of my classes, one of the first things I have to sort of adjust for is this Atlantic slavery was a big thing and doesn't look the exact same everywhere. And there are some aspects within it, you know, the denial of full humanity that certainly are shared across all of these spaces but in the intricacies of it can look a little bit different. And so in the Latin American context, a lot of times the biggest distinction ends up being how important the Catholic church was in overseeing what was to happen. So, you know, when you start talking about the ability to use the legal system and that sort of thing, that often comes down to their ability to use actually the church legal system in order to litigate. And so because you have a predominantly, very vehemently Catholic state throughout much of Latin America, as opposed to the Protestant influences in most of English North America, that's going to cause some major differences in the way that things are carried out. And then also sort of what is prioritized and what is seen as part of the secular law and what is seen as well, this needs to be a proper Christian or Catholic practice. What was the the Catholic Church's position on slavery in Latin America? Did it, did it vary from region to region? Was there a, a sort of a universal approach to it? What was that like? So in short, the church's official approach was somewhat of hesitance that maybe this isn't ideal, but is absolutely necessary. And you can sort of see reverberations of that all the way back to like medieval law codes and the Siete Partidas, which is one of the really influential ones that gets drawn into and influences a lot of later early modern and even modern law codes 
basically said just that, you know, this is a poor institution, but a necessary one. And so the church as a whole accepted that slavery was going to be the norm and that people of African descent were going to be bought and sold and owned. And that was absolutely acceptable. Now you do have a few marginal characters within the church who early on are already perhaps a bit more open to pushing back against that but you don't really see any meaningful, what we might call an abolitionist movement until much later. Maybe I'm going too deep here, so stop me if I am. Compared to the primarily Protestant religion in in North America, the religion and the state were somewhat separate and the religion sort of operated on its own. Is the confluence of the Catholic Church and the Spanish state, is that more or less why they worked together? Even though they said it was bad, they recognized that it was necessary? Yeah, I, I think that had a lot to do with it. And I also think that that close relationship is why you see such a powerful church legal system in Latin America is that the initial monarchs were literally called the Catholic monarchs. Their Catholicism was an integral part of who they were as emperors. And so that meant that, yeah, there is going to be a strong presence, not, hey, we're going to have preachers, priests, what, whatever, but... The church itself is going to have a legal system with judges and secular government is going to support that jurisdiction and say, yes, this is your purview. And if you want to jail people for these things, yes, please go ahead and do that where you're not going to find that kind of thing in North Carolina, Georgia, Virginia during the colonial or even the early U.S. period. Tell us a little bit then about about slavery in Latin America to kind of get us, you know, where we're, where we're hoping to get to. How is it the same from what we, we think of in, in the Southern United States and, and colonies? How is it different? The similarities in sort of broad strokes, you're going to see that there was absolutely some setups of what in the U.S. they'd call plantation slavery. In Latin America, the, the plantation would be referred to as a hacienda and there would be workers who their primary role was agricultural work, very hard taxing kinds of work. And while that model was there, there was also, especially in the early period where I'm looking at, so sort of late 16th, early 17th century. So going from the 1500s into the 1600s, there's also a fair amount of urban slavery in which folks are in the cities, sometimes doing domestic work, sometimes simply being almost what we might think of as rented out for their trades, whether they might be a handyman or a silversmith or a cobbler, you know, whatever they had a skill developed from either their pre-enslavement days or something that was instilled, forced upon them within slavery, that would then become their piece. And so while we have enslaved people in urban spaces in English North America, you maybe would see that a little bit less, especially in terms of once we start thinking about the institutional systems, one of the biggest differences was because of the church, more stringent expectations on quote unquote, good treatment of enslaved people. Now, this does not actually mean good treatment, but almost a, a limit on how poorly you could treat them and how much abuse was going to be acceptable. And so when that was transgressed in the Latin American context, there was the church courts that could come in and really push back against that on a a moral Catholic Christian angle, which is very persuasive and holds some weight behind it, where you would have to go a lot further in the U.S. context and in most of English North America for those same sort of checks. Family structure. 
on on some of these haciendas and things? Is it how does that develop? How does that get established? And to the meat of what we're trying to to discuss here today, how were they able to take steps to stay together as family units that that might have again seen some success, seen some failures, but it seems to be something unique to Latin America. Yeah, indeed. And I think maybe even this idea that wait, enslaved people are marrying one another and doing so in such numbers that we can talk about them doesn't even sound comparable, especially to those early years of enslavement in English North America. And again, that's where in the Catholic system, marriage is a sacrament. And so they want everyone who can be, uh, who they understood is having the potential to be Catholic, which by this point was in fact, all the indigenous people and everyone of African descent, those people should be good Catholics. And involved in that is either taking a vow of celibacy or getting married and taking part in that and that sacrament. So they, they wanted enslaved people to marry. You're not going to find that same sort of encouragement, shall we say, in the English context. So one, you've just got this encouragement that people should be married. And then the issue comes in, and this is sort of the back and forth that we even see in the court cases that I ended up looking at for these studies is, okay, well, if we're going to say enslaved people should get married, then shouldn't those enslaved people also have what the church says is a good proper marriage? And that ends up being the crux of a lot of these legal cases. So walk us through those. Are there are there patterns? Did slavery in Latin American countries tend to keep family, take bigger steps and and more let's say egalitarian view, that's probably not the right word, to keep married enslaved people together. So it's interesting because it is difficult to find any slave owners or their allies who think that that is actually a priority. But the church says that actually that, that should be a primary cause. In fact, starting with the Council of Trent, which is a big global Catholic meeting, for lack of a better term, where they decide, all right, here's uh, how we're going to restate our beliefs and our practices and what's okay and what's not. And then getting restated again at the Council of Lima, which was sort of their localized thing, they basically say that, okay, these people who marry are going to need to stay cohabitating, living together. If enslaved people are going to marry, then they need to live a married life. In fact, that's the, the documents even call it uh, in, in Spanish, hacer la vida meridable, making the married life. It's so you, you are married, but then you have to continually make that life together, meaning live together right. and be together and, and all that that comes with. And so church was adamant that that should be the case, but yet you have all of these slave owners who also have land all over the place and they decide, all right, I want to bring this slave with me or I'm wanting to move some money around. And so for them, that can mean, okay, I want to sell a slave somewhere else, regardless of their marital status. But with the churches saying, no, they need to stay together. Then these enslaved people have a portal and avenue in the church courts to say, all right, no, I can't be separated from my partner because that wouldn't be Catholic. That wouldn't be proper. So what was there? What was the uh, procedure? Basically, if, if circumstances were to create something where they were going to be separated, do they? I guess they start with their parish priest and, and begin the process there. In short, and what's interesting is that it seems at times that that would be a normal sort of check and balance that that local father who's 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 giving mass and who's serving in confession. And 
it seems like maybe there's some times of that, but the local parish priest uh, didn't take great notes on who he was meeting with and obviously didn't take notes at confession. So we, we, <laughs> that's at, right. Yeah, I guess yeah, so. <laughs> at, which, which many are thankful for, no right. doubt. Uh, <laughs> but we actually start to see the collection of documents when these enslaved people actually go to the ecclesiastical tribunal and basically submit a, a petition, right? What, what they would call a demanda for either reunification or the prevention of separation. Because some of these enslaved people even realize beforehand, oh, wait, I can see this sale in the process. They hear about an advertisement. They're told to start preparing their things. And even before the separation, they can go to the courts and say, wait a second, right? This isn't proper. This isn't moral. And also this isn't, in the church terms, legal. So how many won? I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing that, that every enslaved couple is going to take the opportunity, if they can, to get some sort of hearing and, and verdict from a, from a church court. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how many of them were able to, to pull this off and how many of them did not get to pull it off? Yeah. Well, I, I guess we can start with how do we define one, right? Uh, what, what are the parameters of uh, of winning a case? So uh, a lot of times what you see in these sorts of in these sorts of procedures is we might get a petition and then several testimonies back and forth and then the record cuts off. And so we're left wondering, OK, well, what was there an official verdict? And when they cut off, more than likely what happened was there was enough pushback from the court that the enslaved person, either the owner would simply, you know, stop trying to move them, would bring them back together and leave really no point for there to be any, you know, further litigation, or they might informally reach some settlement. Okay. I will also sell your wife. And the owner isn't then compelled to do that because the problem is if they are found in violation of the law, then they end up paying for every piece of paper that gets submitted by the court. So there's actually some incentive to, all right, let's wrap this thing up if we can quickly, not unlike even legal fees today, you know, so that more, more often than not can speed up things. But we do have folks that are able to actually secure that final victory. And the judge says, you are to return Juan to his home in Mexico City and you need to do so within a week. And so we, we see these, what, what I would sort of term outright victories, right? Where the, right. The, the judge comes down and says, you know, that's absolutely the case. What in sort of these finalized cases, I began to see more. And this is where we get into, all right, what counts as winning is when the owners would actually be given permission to, okay, you're allowed to move this slave, but you can only do so for a year. And you must end up returning them and you have a a deposit you have to pay with the court so that they can trust that you'll come back. And so that says, all right, they're not able to permanently move the slave. They're not able to sell them away. That sounds like a win, but against your own will, being kept away from your spouse for at least a year and the possibility that he might, the, the owner might petition for an additional year down the road or could default on that deposit. We have no records of, you know, the final return and the returning of that deposit. And so in those cases, it it almost seems like the principle of enslaved marriages is upheld while the actual slaves involved in those cases, their, their marriage isn't kept together, it, it, at least not in the near term. And that's that plays with heartstrings, right? That plays with emotions and that that instills a yet another layer of trauma to the enslaved life. 
it wasn't the same there as it was in Europe. Basically, that the the, uh, the ecclesiastical courts depended upon the secular authorities to enforce decisions at times, but they also had the, the ecclesiastical tribunal had its own sort of jailing system. So they could also do some of their own strong arming as necessary. And then they also sort of held the big, the big gotcha card of excommunication, right. Of exiling from the, the church. And so that, that, that's the card you often see threatened to be played as a way to enforce whatever they're trying to enforce. Right. And then I, I had seen, you know, someone, this was an article I saw a long time ago when they were, well, people didn't really believe it's like, well, when people were threatened with excommunication, they sure towed the line, which tells me <laughs> that they did believe. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. as you say, that's the big card, right? Well, yeah. Oh yeah. And so not only is there the sort of religious and you could even go so far as to say, right. The eternal consequences of those kinds of decisions, but, no doubt there is then also a social and economic cost associated with those. Like when you suffer excommunication, that is not a private matter. It's not something between you and the priest or you and the ecclesiastical judge, right? That becomes public. And there are folks who are going to choose not to do business with you or not to have dinner with you because of your relationship or lack thereof with the church at that moment. So, you know, you, you've, you've got to be factoring quite a lot of things. So you do, you do see folks avoiding court, avoiding court. Then they get the notice that, all right, if we don't hear from you, you'll get excommunicated. And all of a sudden they happen to show up. <laughs> right. Again, most of our listeners know how slavery eventually came to an end in North America with the end of the civil war and the 13th amendment and all those things. How did African slavery end in the Latin American states? Was it was it similar? Was it before? Was it after? So it almost uh, across the board ends up being beforehand, but it also gets a lot uh, more complicated in the Latin American states because you see a lot more intermarriage between uh, people of African descent, people of Spanish descent, people of indigenous descent. And it was also more common for people to be freed sort of on the deathbed of their owners and sometimes simply freed within their lifetimes. So there are far more free people of color in the Latin American colonies, even as early as the late 1600s, than you would ever see in the U.S. And so in that way, there is emancipation for some even while the institution continued on. So that would sort of be the first part of the story is that there are more people being freed and therefore more free people of African descent already starting in the 1600s. And in fact, we have free people even into the late 1500s. But the real ending of the institution for the most part starts to come in around independence, which the the wars of independence sort of depending on how you understand what counts as a war, basically starts in like 1800, really the 1810s. And then we start to have semi-permanent new national borders and new nation states being conceived by the 1820s. And so either right away or within the first decade or two of those nation states, you have slavery abolished in those places. The one caveat being Brazil, which went independent, but retained a sort of constitutional monarchy And they continue the practice of slavery late into the 1870s, 1880s. So a little different timeline. Right. And one interesting thing you said, too, we can we can wrap it up on this. You're talking about there was a lot more intermarriage in this in the southern part of the continent than in North America. In the North American continent, 
intermarriage with enslaved between enslaved people and whites, especially for whites, culturally was considered anathema. Mm-hmm. Was that simply not the case in Latin America? Was was it a, a a more accepting culture? How did that happen? I certainly wouldn't characterize it as more accepting, but it was at least socially tolerable. But even then, we're not talking about an enslaved person and the daughter of a wealthy landowner, <laughs> right? right? You know, those sort of uh, AMC, you know, uh, fictitious portrayals. But you might have a person of a a poor person of mixed Indian and Spanish heritage. But a free person. But a free person who ends up marrying an enslaved person or a free person uh, of African descent, demonstrating what a lot of the, the research has shown is that the economic realities of people could sometimes maybe limit the importance of those racial divisions, which again, th- those were very clear. In fact, by the time you get to the mid 1700s in Mexico, they start uh, putting out these massive paintings where they try to label every possible combination of intermarriage tracking back, you know, six generations. So, you know, if you are one 32nd African with 16, 30 seconds, you know, one half Spanish, this is the specific name given to that blend of intermarriage. So they, they absolutely still care about these racial categorizations, but a lot of times how poor you were, what neighborhood you lived in was maybe going to override those, at least in choice of, of partner. Right. Right. And I guess, you know, too, it seems like if they're going through the trouble to determine all that it race does matter, but that also says there's a lot of that going on as opposed to North America, where if you're this, you know, if you have this much black in you, you're black period done. Exactly. Nu- nuance. I don't know. Maybe we'll give them more credit than they deserve. Looking mm. back. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's all the time we have. Unfortunately, this is a fascinating topic. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Wisnowski for joining us. This has been enlightening. This is something I don't know that much about. And I would bet that our listeners don't know that much about do you have any last thoughts any any parting shots you want to take on this no no i'm just so happy we uh we got to have the conversation i appreciate you uh having me on and uh hopefully uh we'll get to uh pick a new topic and do it again sometime in the future okay that sounds really really good that sounds good so folks keep an eye on that keep following us on facebook check all of our upcoming things there and keep listening to the podcast thank you for tuning in and until we see you next time Stay safe and take care. Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. We also hope you'll join us for our free weekly live stream programs on Facebook Live and YouTube Live every week at 2 p.m. Eastern. Just search for the Northeast Georgia History Center and we'll pop right up. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Our next members live stream is a virtual tour of the 18th century White Path Cabin here at the History Center. Digital memberships are as low as $3 a month or $35 a year, and you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages, again, at www.negahc.org. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.